Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry once again. I'm glad you joined us today. Our message is focused on the frogs of Egypt and the key principles of faith that God wants to teach us. But first, I want to say thank you for listening and your, for your gifts and your prayers. They mean a lot at this uncertain time. If you haven't renewed your subscription, subscription. Please do so now so you don't forget. Also, download our app. It will keep you up to date on all that we publish. You'll find the latest prophetic intelligence briefings, sermons, and videos. And also, you'll find our new store there, too, where you can order DVDs, books, and music. As we begin today... Please bow your heads with me and join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we near the end of time, we need to think about the deliverance of your people in a practical way. We need hope and assurance in the struggle ahead. We don't want to navigate this time of trouble without it, and we know that we need Jesus to strengthen us for the trial. But we also need to understand it so we are not thrown more off balance than necessary. So please be our teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of Exodus. Moses is instructed to go to Pharaoh again and warn him that if he would not obey, all Egypt would be plagued with frogs. Scarcely had the bloody water disappeared, and Moses was there to give Pharaoh the next lesson about rebellion and obedience, the plague of the frogs. Listen to these verses from Exodus 8, 1 and onward. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Notice that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, to serve is explicitly defined as corporate worship, sacrificing, worshiping God, and observing the feasts and festivals. But the broader context of worship of God also entails serving Him as the only God, exclusive Lord and Master. And so it means worshiping Him in all of life, as well as worshiping him in a corporate body. It also means obedience, for worship is empty if we don't obey. There is a verse of scripture that brings this out. It's found in Isaiah 29, verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips, and do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. 
In other words, the precepts that are taught are of men, not of God. So their worship is in vain. So all these aspects of worship are included when God says that my people may serve me or worship me. Continuing on with verse 2. For his part, Moses bowed before um, divine majesty. Therefore, he can stand erect before an earthly monarch and potentate and give them God's intentions. And he received fresh instructions daily from heaven. He worked for a higher potentate than Pharaoh. Thus saith the Lord. There is certainty in that statement. There is no suggestion that it is negotiable or pliable. It is an affirmation of divine truth to come again next upon Pharaoh and Egypt. The prediction will come true if Pharaoh doesn't comply. Thus saith the Lord, If thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs, and the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house, and into thy bedchamber, and upon thy bed, and into the house of thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thine ovens, and into thy kneading troughs. And the frog shall come up both on thee, and upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. God does not punish for sin, unless men persist in it. The word of God says in Psalm 7:12, If he turn not, he will wet his sword. So God warns men in some way before he sends judgment, and he will favor them and not bring judgment if they turn from their wicked ways. For example, think of how God dealt with Nineveh. If Pharaoh complied with the conditions, God would relent and drop his controversy with him. If thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. Can you imagine Pharaoh hearing Moses threaten him with frogs? <laughs> frogs? You've got to be kidding. Frogs? You can't threaten me with frogs. I am Pharaoh. Do you think I am afraid of a little frog? That means nothing. I'll get my magicians to make them too. Your God is not so powerful. Frogs, <laughs> how funny. Imagine this man Moses threatens me with an invasion of frogs. Am I supposed to get my chariots and my horsemen and fight this little frog? Am I to take my sword out and stop this enemy? What does Moses think he is doing? This is ridiculous. We worship the frog because it is a symbol of life, the generation of life, and frogs won't do us any real harm. Now, the Egyptian frogs are much like frogs in the rest of the world. You all have seen them and heard them, at least. Uh, frogs are small, though these Egyptian ones grow to about five inches. They are normally inconsiderable little animals, and they are weak and really have no power. 
But 1 Corinthians one twenty seven gives us God's perspective. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. God was going to use frogs to humble the proud and haughty monarch. He was going to turn the tables against Pharaoh and Egypt. The Lord decided to disrupt the rule of Egypt by means of those frogs. In fact, he was going to humble the mightiest and most powerful nation on earth by vast, unrelenting numbers of frogs. It was not just one or two or a few. There were going to be so many that the Egyptians were going to soon get very tired of them. The Hebrews didn't really know what to call them. They didn't use the exact word for frog. The word that is used in verse 2 is croaker. You know, things that croak. Frogs are certainly a thing in Egypt. There's naturally a lot of them, but they stay in the river. Moses didn't have another name for them, but he explained that God would confront Egypt with croakers. God could have plagued them with bears and lions or wolves or vultures or birds of prey, but he chose to do it by contemptible little instruments, croaking frogs. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand and thy rod over the streams and over the rivers and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Pharaoh is not alarmed, nor inclined to yield to divine summons. Aaron is ordered to call up the forces, and with his outstretched arm, and with that remarkable and now fearful rod in his hand, gives a signal for battle. Again, with his dramatic style, he stretches out his frightful rod over the streams, over the Nile, and over the farmland ponds, and croaking frogs descend upon the cities and palaces of Pharaoh and his people. No sooner said than done. The host is mustered, and under the direction of a commander of invisible power, millions and millions of them invade the land of Egypt with all their might, bringing with them all their weapons they are known for, their croaking noise, magnified by their sheer numbers, and their hopping or crawling, and their penetration into every corner, nook and cranny, even into the utensils for cooking. Ugh! These slimy creatures turned into pests were everywhere. And the Egyptians were all, with all their might and all their skill, could not stop their progress. They could not corral them not so much as give them diversion. And the frogs came up literally and covered the land. What a nuisance! What a diversion for the Egyptians! (laughs) What an economic and social consequence! 
God has many ways of creating frustration and exasperation for those that live in ease and sin. Verse 7. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt. The magicians spring into action and pretend to imitate the miracle by their occult methods. But they could only fake it. If they really had power, they could have magically made the frogs go back where they came from. But it was impossible for them. But instead, they only worsen the misery of the people. Doesn't that sound like what modern magicians, scientists, philosophers, politicians, and government leaders, and even anarchists do today? They increase the misery rather than help reduce it. Every pain they devise to help the situation only makes it worse, if not immediately, in the long run. And they have no agenda to help the poor, in spite of their promises. The poor are still poor, the sick are still sick, and even the well become sick. Every measure devised to improve the economy only makes it worse by intended or unintended consequences, and so on. That is the way things are. Then the naturalists and the scientists try to explain it away. Well, what happened to, is the waters were fouled, and so the frogs came up out of the waters. There's a purely natural explanation for this, you know. It's just merely a natural consequence of cause and effect in flooding in Egypt in the spring. You can hear them, can't you? But this has never happened before. It's not natural. It's a plague. And God overran the mightiest nation on earth with frogs and brought them to the breaking point. Do you think the plagues at the end of time will be explainable by some natural cause? Well, scientists will try. They are already conditioned to this by their disbelief in God. Imagine trying to put up with literally millions of croaking frogs for days. Pharaoh stepped on them and sat on them. They hopped in bed with him and croaked in his ear. They got in the closets and furniture and bathtubs and ovens and among the cooking utensils and kneading troughs. They were everywhere. They were croaking in the council chambers while meetings of state were conducted. They hopped into laundry baskets, teacups, and water pots, and they left their excrement everywhere, which soiled everything and made all Egypt smell bad. They made a nuisance of themselves and disturbed the Egyptians and robbed them of their peace. Pharaoh was surprised at how extensively the frogs could invade his kingdom and overrun every home, even his magnificent palace, which the Hebrews, no doubt, helped build. They were so numerous that they made the Egyptians very uneasy and on the lookout for frogs anywhere. Their whole attention would be given over to the swarming frogs. They couldn't really pay attention to business or trade, daily life, or matters of state. They always had to watch for frogs, and they 
might not step on them or let them get into their food or go to bed with them. They couldn't sleep peacefully at night for all the croaking. The pesky little frog would somehow get under the sheets and croak. Wherever the Egyptians looked, there were frogs. Egypt was infested with frogs. They were intolerable. The women would complain to their husbands of the awful creatures that have corrupted their kitchens, who would vainly attempt to put them out of the house. But the frogs just would come in another way, more numerous than before. God's curse upon a man will pursue him wherever he goes and will lie heavily on him in whatever he does. There is no avoiding divine judgments, for they invade upon their lives with a commission or an agenda. And since the frog was considered a god, the frog-faced Hicket, the god of fertility, often pictured as a squatting frog, she was supposed to be a good luck charm to increase the fertility of the people, and frogs were regarded as sacred. The Egyptians wouldn't kill them, and they must have apologized to them when they stepped on them or sat on them and squished their plump little bodies. Imagine apologizing to a frog. God was challenging the polytheism and idolatry of the Egyptians. You know, we have frog worshippers today. They try to protect their environment and prevent marshland from being drained. Well, I'm not knocking reasonable environmentalism, but it's true. They worship the frog, really. There is another reason why God chose to use frogs to punish Egypt. Pharaoh tried unsuccessfully to strike at the fertility of God's people and destroy the Hebrew male children by throwing them into the river. So God took out the Egyptian god of fertility, showing that he is the one who gives life. He is the ruler, the sovereign of fertility. But there's more. This infanticide destroyed the basic unit of society, the family. In this case, it was the Hebrew families. The enemy has always been opposed to the concept of family. It was a feature of the creation of man, and today this assault is truer than ever. The enemy is seeking to disrupt and destroy the family in many ways, such as divorce, single-parent families, and marriages God has not approved. But he has done it in more subtle ways. He has made it more difficult to survive on one income, sending mothers to work and putting their children in daycare. And it's even more wicked than that. With alternative marriages, plus the enemy has made it more difficult to survive on one income, sending mothers to work and putting their children in daycare. Families don't eat together. They don't worship together. They don't plan to do good for others together. They spend precious little time together.
This plague of frogs not only looks back to Pharaoh's attempt to kill the children of the Hebrews, but it looks forward to a more severe judgment on Pharaoh, which destroyed the firstborn of Pharaoh, down to the lowest cottage in Egypt, to the firstborn of the flocks and herds. The language used in verse 5 portrays the idea that frogs were swarming and teeming everywhere in Egypt. Now listen to the language in chapter 1, verse 7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. This language indicates that the Hebrews were so many swarming and teeming over the land of Egypt that it scared Pharaoh. So he tried to control the population of the Hebrews by killing all the male children. Besides causing a variety of social problems, this would have directly affected their ability to procreate. So God directly attacked the goddess of fertility to show the Egyptians that he is the one that controls fertility with everything else. And the land and waters swarmed and teemed with frogs. God magnified his own power by using these little creatures to fulfill his purpose. He is Lord of all the hosts of creation and has them at his beck and call and makes what use he pleases of them. God shows his power as much by making an ant or a frog as by making an elephant. So does his providence in serving his own purposes, by the least of his creatures as effectively as by the strongest, so that proud humanity will recognize that the excellency of his power may be seen in justice as well as in mercy. Why then do we fight God, who can arm the smallest parts of creation against us when he sees fit to do so? That our obstinance and arrogance is checked by his awesome power. And if God is our enemy, all creatures are at war with us. This lesson has even more significance. For all the hatred against God these days, the fact that nature doesn't destroy the wicked is a testament to God's abundant, overwhelming mercy and long-suffering. What a mortification it would have been to haughty Pharaoh, who has reached the zenith of his power and majesty, not to mention respect, to see himself brought to his knees and forced to submit by a humble frog. How despicable! Every child is ordinarily able to deal with these little invaders and can triumph over them whenever he wants to. Yet now their troops are so numerous and the assaults so vigorous that the monarch, with all his chariots and horsemen, could not make any headway against them. The truth of the words of Job 12.21 have particular force here. He poureth contempt upon princes, and weakeneth the strength of the mighty. Pharaoh had contempt for God, 
so God had contempt on the obstinate monarch. Pharaoh was no more a sovereign than God permitted him to be. And if Pharaoh would not acknowledge the sovereign above him, God used one of his humblest creatures to insult him and trample upon him, from the humblest cottage to the sumptuous resorts and lordly palaces. The frogs are a direct assault on Pharaoh's rule. Pharaoh and all his people were so annoyed with the frogs that finally Pharaoh called for Moses. He had not done that before, and Moses had come to him with the demand to let the people go to worship God in the wilderness. But listen to verse 8. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and and I will let the people go that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. Pharaoh is somewhat humbled and acknowledged the God of heaven. This is also something he had not done before. But he was impatient to have the frogs removed, and he begs Moses to intercede for him with the Lord to remove the frogs. He who had little a little while before denied the existence of God and has spoken with the utmost disdain for both God and Moses is now willing to acknowledge him and plead with him for mercy. He places himself in the position of an underling to God and Moses, and asks Moses to remove the nuisance, the plague of the frogs. Pharaoh realizes that the magicians cannot remove the frogs. Pharaoh's gods have failed him again, and he has no choice but to yield the battlefield to the power and sovereignty of God. Those who defy God and live in wickedness with abandon in his sight will in the day of extremity be made to see that they need him and will cry to him for mercy. How ironic. Intercede for me, he says. He asks Moses to pray, and he even promises to let the people go to worship however insincere it might be. This is not a willing action of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is in a tight spot and now turns to Moses and Aaron and asks them to pray for him. Won't that be the way the wicked will acknowledge God's power and goodness at the end of the millennium? Listen to it from Great Controversy, page 662. Every eye in that vast multitude is turned to behold the glory of the Son of God. With one voice the wicked host exclaimed, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. It is not love to Jesus that inspires this utterance. The force of truth urges the words from unwilling lips. As the wicked went into their graves, so they come forth with the same enmity to Christ and the same spirit of rebellion. They are to have no new probation 
in which to remedy the defects of their past lives. Nothing would be gained by this. A lifetime of transgression has not softened their hearts. A second probation, were it given them, would be occupied as was the first, in evading the requirements of God and exciting rebellion against him. Exodus 8, verse 9. And Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me. When shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses, that they may remain in the river only? This phrase, glory over me, simply means it is your honor to choose the time for the plague to cease. Moses did this to show Pharaoh that his performance of the request is not dependent on the conjunctions or operations of the planets, or the luckiness of one hour of the day more than another. There is no magic involved here simply the power of God over nature. Moses intended to convict Pharaoh. If his eyes were not opened by the plague, they might be opened by its removal. Verses 10 and 11. And he said, Tomorrow, and he said, Be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like the Lord our God. And the frog shall depart from thee, and from thy house, and from thy servants, and from thy people. They shall remain in the river only. Moses essentially says that the Lord alone has the power to send and relieve the plague. But why did he not set the time to retire the plague immediately? Was he so fond of his guests that he would have them stay another night? (laughs) Was he he not tired enough of them already? From Patriarchs and Prophets, page 265 and 266, we read, He set the next day, secretly hoping that in the interval the frogs might disappear of themselves and thus save him from the bitter humiliation of submitting to the God of Israel. The plague, however, continued until the time specified. Pharaoh's secret wish did not pan out. The plague stayed with Egypt until the specified time. He was forced to reckon with the very things he wanted to avoid. And that's the way God deals with all sinners. They are forced in some way to come face to face with their sin and repent and receive mercy or reject God's offer of forgiveness and suffer deeper consequences. Moses said, Be it according to thy word that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. It shall be done exactly when you say, Because by this you will know that whatever the magicians pretend to, that there is none like unto the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. This is not magic. This is God. There is none that has such a command of nature and over the creatures that 
can do this plague or make a remedy for it. Nor is there one like the Lord God who is so ready to forgive those that humble themselves before him. The great design, both of judgment and of mercy, is to convince us that there is none like the Lord our God, none so wise, none so mighty, none so good, no enemy so formidable, no friend so desirable, no one so valuable. Verse 12, And Moses and Aaron went out from peril. And Moses cried unto the Lord because of the frogs, which he had brought against Pharaoh. And Moses prevailed with God in earnest prayer for the removal of the frogs. Verses 13 and 14. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, out of the fields, and they gathered them together upon heaps, and the land stank. Moses tells Pharaoh that the frogs will depart, but interestingly, he does not tell Pharaoh how. He simply tells Pharaoh that the only living frogs left will be the ones in the Nile. Boy, should Pharaoh have attached a caveat to that request. Moses leaves his palace, and we're told that he cries out to the Lord in prayer. Can you imagine this story being told by the former slaves around the fires in the wilderness? They knew that they were a people who had have been utterly powerless. They had no say about their work. They had no say about their wages. They have had no say about their family life about their ability to move from place to place, about their ability to improve their own situation, and suddenly they are being told that the most powerful man they have ever known it was reduced to the point that he had to go to the, their religious leader and ask him to pray to God to remove the frogs. <laughs> this was a great acknowledgement that the future of the nation was not in the hands of Pharaoh, but in the hands of God. Can you imagine the humiliating position Pharaoh is in? Do you mean to tell us, God, that our prayers are more significant in the course of your designs in the history of nations than are the rulers of those nations? And God says, you better believe it. You are my people, and I rule the world by my word and my spirit. And I choose your prayers as one of those instruments of my decree to move the course of nations forward and to reveal my divine plan. Perhaps you are in a situation that makes you feel utterly powerless. Consider this scene. Whatever is powerful at a human level in your experience, it cannot match the power according to God's mercy if your prayer of intercession is in accordance with his will. God's people may look powerless in this world, but by prayer they are the chosen instruments of the future of time and history. 
You are never completely powerless in this world when you are serving God. Maybe your health is going on you and you feel so out of control. This is your body. You have always been in control of your body and suddenly your body is not serving you like it used to. Maybe it's a family situation. Everything you try doesn't work and you feel utterly powerless and God is saying to you, you you're never powerless. I use the instrument of prayer. I hear my people and Pharaoh can't measure up to the influence that you have with me. The frogs came up out of the river in one day and perished when the Egyptians had had enough and they died wherever they were so that the Egyptians would have to gather up their dead bodies and take them out of their houses and pile them up in the streets. They raked up their bodies into heaps. Keep in mind that they were everywhere, including in the fields, in the forests, in the roads, and in the byways as well. They couldn't collect them all, and they did their best to collect them out of their homes and barns, but there were plenty they didn't get in the fields and ditches. And these heaps and the remaining bodies scattered around stank with a putrid smell. The great sovereign of the universe makes what use he pleases of the lives and deaths of his creatures. And he that gives a being to them to serve one purpose may, without committing injustice, use them in some other way <clears throat> to serve another purpose. In other words, God sent the frogs to overrun Egypt, and then he used the dead bodies to overwhelm Egypt with smell and to show that it was not magic that had done this. Listen to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 266. The Lord could have caused them to return to dust in a moment. But he did not do this, lest after their removal the king and his people would pronounce the it the result of sorcery or enchantment, like the work of the magicians. The frogs died and were then gathered together in heaps. Here the king and all Egypt had evidence which their vain philosophy could not gainsay. This is work that was not accomplished by magic, but was a judgment from the God of heaven. I don't know if you can imagine the scene. There's Pharaoh, the great monarch of the greatest nation on earth at the time, holding a damp cloth to his mouth and nose, trying to reduce the stench in his nostrils. He can hardly contain himself and his composure because of the smell. Will somebody get rid of those rotting dead frogs, he commands. The smell is driving me mad. But your eminence, says one of his aides, they are too numerous to do it quickly. The housekeeping department is working as fast as they can. Besides, the frogs have died in places all around the palace that are nearly impossible to get into. 
The stench also gives the Egyptians something to distract them from their projects and from their Hebrew slaves. Again, business, trade, commerce, weddings, social gatherings, feasts, essentially all cultural events, all society came to a halt in order to deal with the frogs. The death and stench of the frogs foreshadowed the death of the firstborn, the object which the Egyptians revered as a symbol of life and fertility became a symbol of decay and death. This plague, like all the others, was against the government of Egypt, because the rulers persecuted God's people and stubbornly refused to yield to God's will. God always works with our hearts, and this was no different in Egypt. If Pharaoh would have softened his heart and was willing to yield his pride, he would have preserved his power and would not have devastated his kingdom. God could have blessed Egypt so abundantly that they would have been a great superpower. But things didn't go that way, and eventually Egypt was devastated because of man's rebellion. Pharaoh lost not only his crown, but his life, all because of his stubbornness and rebellion. The lesson is clear. We cannot think we know better than God. God is all-knowing, and we may not be given understanding of why God allows certain things, but we can rest assured that God's purposes, even under pain, are benevolent and designed to lead us to salvation. Even his plagues are merciful toward the rebellious sinner. But when man continues in rebellion, in spite of the evidence, when we continue in violation of God's laws, eventually the rebellion will destroy us. That's one of the reasons why God did not remove the frogs' dead bodies that polluted the atmosphere and fouled the air so that the Egyptians could not breathe without smelling the offensive stench. It was to remind Pharaoh of the late plague and that he should not harden his heart lest a worse plague come upon him and the nation. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, He hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord said. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, without considering the massive disruption and distraction that the frogs were to his kingdom and his people, and without considering that a worse thing could be coming if he didn't relent, he defiantly and stubbornly hardened his heart, and refused to let Israel go. Friends, have you ever seen someone so stubborn that no matter the consequences, they will double down in their position, even if they know that doing so will hurt them, if not immediately, in the long run? I have, and I can only pity them. Now let me ask you, have you ever done that yourself? You sin, and God rebukes you. You keep on sinning, and God punishes you. And still, you keep on doing that thing. Well, you're just like Pharaoh. 
blindly doubling down. I can only pity you. But I have done the same thing. I have doubled down in my rebellion and had much trouble for it. All my troubles come upon me because I stupidly cling to my sins. So I guess I can only pity myself too. I hope on God's mercy and pity. God pities us, even every one of us. And God pitied Pharaoh too. He was long-suffering with Pharaoh and gave him many opportunities to do what's right. And he does the same with us till we are brought to surrender to him or our hearts are so hardened that in sin that he must leave us to ourselves. God is good to those who love him. God is good to those who hate him. God is good to those that pretend to be his people. God is good. His responses and interactions may be different for each one because of the different types of people, but he is always good. We could say the same for mercy. God is merciful. We could say the same for long-suffering, for God is long-suffering. Whatever attribute that is ascribed to God, we can apply this principle. God responds differently to each one because we have different needs and different personalities. We need different ways of dealing to bring us to repentance. But all of it is because God is good. Here is something to think about. It's from Fundamentals of Education, page 409. There are laws of nature, but they are harmonious and conform with all God's working. But when the Lord's many and God's many set themselves to explain God's own principles and providences, presenting to the world strange fire in the place of divine, there is confusion. The machinery of earth and heaven needs many faces to every wheel in order to see the hand beneath the wheels bringing perfect order from confusion. The living and the true God is in necessity everywhere. So God works to bring about his will amid all the human things going on. If we don't bring trouble upon ourselves by our own rebellion to his will, the more we are aligned with his will and think of his thoughts, the less trouble we will have. When Pharaoh hardened his heart, he signaled to his people that they could keep on with their oppression and rebellion. He had a lot of influence on others. Therefore, he had more responsibility to do what was right and lead by example. Israel had multiplied themselves abundantly. They were very fertile, and that caused Pharaoh to become jealous of them. So he conjured up an excuse to enslave them. He feared them. When God blesses man, others become jealous and wish to put them down. This is the never-ending controversy between Christ and Satan, 
on this earth until the end of time. When God blesses his people, the enemy of God and man tries to limit the effect. In fact, he tries to make slaves of us in so many ways. But God can and will deliver us when it is for our best good. Until the heart is renewed by divine grace, we are impervious to the impressions that would otherwise have been made under affliction. Pharaoh's conviction that he must relent wore off, and the promises he made that he was under pressure to make were quickly forgotten. What thaws in the sun will freeze again in the shade until the air is changed and even the shade temperature is above freezing. If we rebel and push at God, he turns up the heat. God's patience is shamefully abused by unrepentant sinners, and Pharaoh was certainly unrepentant. God gave him a respite to lead him to repentance, it was meant to soften his heart, but instead it hardened him by his own choices. And the voice of the Holy Spirit is a little softer after every rejection. God graciously allowed Pharaoh a truce in order to make peace, but he took the opportunity to rally the baffled forces of an obstinate infidelity. Let us read Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. If God was so hard, he could have punished Pharaoh with the full penalty of his sin of obstinance, and God would have been right to do that. If he had done that all along, that may have gotten only an early compliance with his will. But God would then be accused of being a tyrant and would have caused men to serve him out of fear instead of love. God is not like that. Psalm 78.34 puts it succinctly. When he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and inquired early after God. But God didn't do that with Pharaoh. He doesn't mete out the punishment we deserve. He gave Pharaoh many opportunities to see the light and check the evil that he was doing to God's people and repent and cooperate with God. The respite granted to him should have been a sufficient warning to him to expect another plague. For if it go away for a time and it hardens him and he loses the benefit of it, we may conclude that it goes away with a purpose to return, or it will only make room for a worse plague to come. It isn't wise to play with God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so impressed how you dealt with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. We don't want to be stubborn and rebellious like Pharaoh, so please soften our hearts and have mercy on us, I pray. 
And may we learn the lessons of the plague of the frogs. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean so much to us. Thank you for your support. Don't forget to send you in your yellow renewal card as soon as possible. And the song you have just heard is called We Stand in Deep Repentance. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called The Way of Peace. If you would like to have a copy of the CD, just send $16 postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send you one. Please mention the Way of Peace CD. Other international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our prophetic intelligence briefing. 
a feature that brings you current events in the light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis and the coming of the Lord. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month. Virginia Democrats target pastor who spoke out in support of Christian teacher during transgender debate. Democrats in Northern Virginia are coming after a pastor accusing him of making libelous and inflammatory comments after he weighed in on one teacher's right to hold her own religious views on gender identity. Brian Tanner Cross, a PE teacher for Loudoun County Public Schools, LCPS, told the school board last Tuesday that he opposed a new policy requiring all staff to use students' preferred pronouns and to allow transgender students to participate in sport activities based on how they identify, regardless of their biological sex. CBN's Faithwire reported that Cross disagreed with the policy changes, believing they will damage children and defile the holy image of God. Quote, I love all of my students, but I will never lie to them regardless of the consequences, Cross said during a meeting. I am a teacher, but I serve God first, and I will not affirm that a biological boy can be a girl, and vice versa, because it's against my religion. It's lying to a child. It's abuse to a child. And it's sinning against our God. After sharing his views, Cross was placed on administrative leave from Leesburg Elementary School. Cross's pastor, Cornerstone Chapel's Gary Hamrick, said on Sunday that he supports the recall of at least six Loudoun County School Board members who are emotionally abusing our children by perpetuating the lie about gender confusion. Quote, The school board, some of them, not all, some of them are not doing their duty to protect, let alone educate our children, Hamrick told congregants. And they are subjecting them to sexually explicit materials, and they are already talking about introducing racially divisive curriculum. They are emotionally abusing our children by perpetuating the lie about gender confusion when they affirm pronouns that are contrary to biology, reality, and the beautiful design of God. So they need to be held accountable, and it's time to step up. Then Loudoun County Democrats issued a statement on Monday calling for the pastor to retract his comments because they could incite violence. Quote, We call on Pastor Gary Hamrick to recant his allegations due to the libelous and inflammatory nature of the remarks. The statement reads, Unfounded statements such as these not only hurt our community that he is meant to serve, but have dangerous ramifications for the incitement of violence. But Pastor Hamrick told CBN News that he was simply telling the truth, and won't recant his comments. Quote, he, Cross, was just exercising his First Amendment rights, and the school invited public input. For this, he gets placed on administrative leave. Hamrick's comments weren't just about the teacher transgender case. They were also related to an effort by parents who are fighting to recall the Loudoun County School Board over raunchy reading material and critical race theory. 
quote, We're doing a disservice to our children when we lie to them about what gender they are, he told CBN News. It defies biology, reality, and the design of God. If the school board would just stick with the basic elements of reading and writing, I wouldn't have to speak up. Pastor Hamrick stressed that he was also speaking for the thousands of parents in Loudoun County who are outraged. And the matter drew attention in the Virginia governor's race, with Republican nominee Glenn Youngkin speaking out in support of Cross. Quote, It's amazing to me that we see the Loudoun County School Board ignore and absolutely trample on Tanner Cross's constitutional rights to express not only his religious beliefs, but also his right to free speech, Youngkin said during an interview on Fox News. Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, a faith-based legal advocacy organization, penned a letter to the school system urging for Cross to be reinstated. Quote, The coming of the bridegroom was at midnight, the darkest hour. So the coming of Christ will take place in the darkest period of this earth's history. The days of Noah and Lot pictured the condition of the world just before the coming of the Son of Man. The scriptures pointing forward to this time declare that Satan will work with all power and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. Christ Object Lessons, page 414. Next, China state media says country must prepare for nuclear war with U.S. after Biden asked for COVID probe. Hugh Shijin, the editor of the Chinese state-run newspaper The Global Times, considers enhancing China's nuclear program as being vital to the country's strategic deterrence against the United States. Protests in Hong Kong, Taiwan, the COVID-19 pandemic, and accusations China's engaged in a genocide against the Uyghur Muslims are sowing deeper divisions in an already strained relationship between China and the United States. With Beijing one of America's top concerns, President Joe Biden has sought to strike a stern tone, while China sees much of America's actions and comments to be an encroachment on its sovereignty. The increasingly confrontational rhetoric and military maneuvers coming out of the two countries have raised concerns about a potential war. Quote, we must be prepared for an intense showdown between China and the U.S., Hugh wrote in a Thursday op-ed for the Global Times. The number of China's nuclear warheads must reach the quantity that makes U.S. elites shiver should they entertain the idea of engaging in a military confrontation with China. Hugh advocated for rapidly increasing the number of commissioned nuclear warheads, DF-41s, an intercontinental ballistic missile, and strategic missiles that have long-range capabilities. The editor posted the same comment on Weibo, a Chinese social media platform. China and the United States have been sparring over a range of issues, including the COVID-19 pandemic. Hugh's op-ed came one day after Biden announced he instructed the intelligence community to double down on their efforts to identify the COVID-19 origin, including coming up with a list of questions that China has to answer. The intelligence community hasn't ruled out the possibility that COVID-19 originated in a laboratory 
a notion that China vehemently dismissed as being politically motivated and anti-science. Officials have also attempted to shift blame to the United States Fort Detrick, citing no evidence and accused Biden of stoking confrontation and sowing division with the intelligence investigation. Before Biden drew China's ire for his push for an investigation into the origin of the coronavirus, tensions mounted over an American warship sailing through the Taiwan Strait. The American military maintained that the ship's transit was in line with international order and demonstrated the United States' commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. China, however, saw it as a threat to its control over Taiwan and accused the U.S. of endangering peace and stability in the region. In his op-ed, Hugh wrote that building up China's nuclear arsenal is important because America's strategic containment of China is becoming increasingly intensified. Having that military buildup is a cornerstone of China's strategic deterrence against the U.S., according to Hugh. Quote, The judgments of God are in the land. The wars and rumors of wars, the destruction by fire and flood, say clearly that the time of trouble, which is to increase until the end, is very near at hand. We have no time to lose. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. The prophecies of the 11th of Daniel have almost reached their final fulfillment. Maranatha, page 25. Next, total of 23 people shot, two killed outside Northwest Miami-Dade Banquet Hall. Miami-Dade police are investigating a deadly mass shooting that left two people dead and 21 others injured in what detectives described as a targeted act of violence. Quote, this is a despicable act of gun violence, said Miami-Dade Police Director Freddy Ramirez, a cowardly act. According to police, the shooting took place after a birthday party for a local rapper known as ABMG Spitta, whose real name is Courtney Paul Wilson. Police confirmed that shots were fired back at the three shooters and about 100 shell casings were found at the scene. Quote, well, we know now from the evidence that's coming out is that there was return fire from the patrons when these subjects began firing. There was return fire. There's multiple casings throughout the scene that establishes that. However, we don't know at this time who were those shooters that were returning fire. And we don't know yet, Ramirez said. Victims were rushed to several hospitals in Miami-Dade and Broward counties some in their personal vehicles, according to police. Ramirez said the El Mula Banquet Hall, located at 7630 Northwest 186th Street, was rented out for a concert Saturday into Sunday morning. According to police, the music stopped just after midnight and patrons were standing outside when three subjects stepped out of a white Nissan Pathfinder SUV with assault rifles and handguns and began shooting indiscriminately into the crowd. Quote, Typically, the crowd is usually rowdy, a fight every other weekend, said Alex Lanieres, who works nearby. It was a matter of time before something really bad happened, and I guess today was that time. Police said paramedics took eight people from the scene, while at least 12 others were driven or drove themselves to various hospitals. 
Seven victims were rushed to Jackson Memorial Hospital after initially arriving at Palmetto General Hospital, police said. Quote, you never know what it's like until you have something jerked away from you, said Chad Harris, who is the father of one of the shooting victims, a 19-year-old woman. She's in surgery now. We're just praying, praying for all the victims, praying for all the families. Outside the emergency room at Jackson Memorial Hospital, as many as 50 family members and friends gathered to wait for information about their loved ones. Angelica Green was one of those people. She told Local 10 News that her 24-year-old son was one of the shooting victims and that he was shot in the stomach. Quote, He called us frantic, saying he had been shot, that it hurts and that he loves us, Green said. My husband was like, no, stay with us. Police are now asking the community for help as they comb through surveillance footage and gather evidence. Quote, He said the guys came with ski masks and hoodies and just started shooting up the crowd, Green said. Anyone with information is urged to contact Miami-Dade Crime Stoppers at 305-471-TIPS. Quote, Society at the present time is corrupt as it was in the days of Noah. To the long-lived antediluvian race, only a step from paradise, God gave rich gifts, and they possessed a strength of body and of mind which men now but have a faint idea. But they used his bounties and the strength and skill he gave them for selfish purposes, to minister to unlawful appetites and to gratify pride. They expelled God from their thoughts. They despised his law, trampled his standard of character in the dust. They reveled in sinful pleasure, corrupting their ways before God and corrupting one another. Violence and crime filled the earth. Neither the marriage relation nor the rights of property were respected, and the cries of the oppressed entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. By beholding evil, men became changed into its image, until God could bear with their wickedness no longer, and they were swept away by the flood. Special Testimonies on Education, page 43. Next, how Walgreens found out that leftist laws can destroy business. If shoppers have an unlimited opportunity to shoplift, the outcome is not difficult to predict. The shoplifters will prosper and the shops will close. Elementary students could figure out the simple negative mathematical calculations needed to reach such a conclusion. Unfortunately, elementary students do not govern California. Seven years ago, social justice warriors put together Proposition 47, a successful ballot initiative known as Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act. It recategorized nonviolent offenses and is especially known for lowering the penalties for thefts under $950, making it a misdemeanor. Areas of California that have liberally applied the proposition are now paying the consequences. Shoplifting is spiraling out of control in the San Francisco metro area. Walgreens has closed 17 stores there over the last five years. Ten of these were shuttered since 2019. The drugstore chain reports huge losses due to brazen theft and warns that more of the 53 remaining area stores may have to close. This result is not what the Axe framers had in mind. Liberal justice reformers claim lax measures like Proposition 47 
provide a second chance for entry-level criminals and help empty the prisons for more violent inmates. The act caters to opportunistic shoplifters who may be, quote, driven by poverty to steal. The reformers, however, are surprised that others have joined in the stealing spree. Indeed, the misnamed measure is based on a false and sentimental premise inherent to liberal thought. Liberals believe people are fundamentally good. They only do bad things because they are forced to do so by the circumstances. The immaculate conception of the individual holds that people are misinformed, not malicious. If treated with enough kindness, people will change their ways. Hence, society needs to understand how people might be driven to steal. It even behooves the community to facilitate it if the circumstances cannot be changed. Thus, Proposition 47 is a liberal policy made into law. It is designed to prevent the occasional shoplifter forced to steal from developing a criminal record. Shoplifting became a nonviolent misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of six months. In theory, simply shoplifting under 950 in value results in the offender's release with a slap on the wrist warning not to do it again. In practice, it allowed repeat offenders to steal with impunity as long as they stay under the $950 threshold per store visit. Merchants who sympathize with this liberal vision of society have been mugged by reality, and hordes of criminals who know a good opportunity when they see one. Stores like Walgreens are now targets for professional shoplifters, homeless people, and drug addicts who go from store to store gaming the system by stealing items under the threshold. The new shoplifters are not even discreet as they do not hide their crime. Some shoplifters operate with a calculator to make sure they stay under the limit. Merchants watch helplessly as people help themselves to items in broad daylight and walk out of the store. Overworked police are often reluctant to stop them since they know the criminals will soon be back on the street after being freed by liberal magistrates. The arrest is hardly worth the effort or the paperwork. Police criticize the measure as a get-out-of-jail-free card for those professional criminals that know how to trick the system and control their greed to a mere $950 per store per visit. Some criminals will even use children to shoplift, knowing that they are even more unlikely to be prosecuted by liberal prosecutors. Residents are the losers in this dangerous game. The Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act is fast making their areas unsafe. In places like San Francisco, the relaxed attitude toward crime is creating no-go zones. People no longer want to go into these stores where crimes are committed so brazenly. Nonviolent crime attracts violent criminals and professional thieves. Thus, elderly people, children, and poor families stay away from the victimized stores. In the name of a misguided sentimentality toward criminals, honest people are deprived of those places they need to get their medications and supplies. The most vulnerable people become victims. A sense of danger prevails, even though San Francisco stores spend 35 times more on security guards than elsewhere. Many have said that it would be hard to document the impact of Proposition 47 on crime. The vacated Walgreens drugstores are tragic testimonies to what happens when misplaced liberal sentiment trumps reality. 
The problem is not only a bad policy, but a failed worldview. Stealing can never be rationalized as a habit driven by poverty. Theft is always wrong, regardless of who does it. Virtue is the only policy that will keep neighborhoods and schools safe. This practice of virtue presupposes morality motivated by a love of God. Quote, the spirit of anarchy is permeating all nations, and the outbreaks that from time to time excite the horror of the world are but indications of the pent-up fires of passion and lawlessness that, having once escaped control, will fill the earth with woe and desolation. The picture which inspiration has given of the antediluvian world represents too truly the condition to which modern society is fast hastening. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 101. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.